So, given that this is an introduction to the series, uh, it would only be right for me to tell you a little bit about Colossae, um, the city to which uh, this letter is written. Um, unfortunately, there's not all that much to say about Colossae, or maybe fortunately, because it would be a bit dull if it was just a history lesson about Colossae. Colossae, in the first century, uh, was a smallish, slightly down-at-heel town. I imagine it being a little bit like Hastings, but smaller, and not on the coast. So not much like Hastings, um, but a little bit down at heel. Sorry if you're from Hastings. I think of Hastings as being the epitome of down at heelness, but there you go. Um, and it, it had really suffered from the rise in importance of its neighbours. Um, the larger city of Laodicea, just over the hill, had kind of eclipsed it a bit. And beyond that, there isn't really much to say about the town in our time. Uh, it existed for a few more hundred years and was then destroyed in an earthquake, and that was the end of Colossae. Uh, much more importantly, for our purposes, um, there was a church there uh, to which the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. He wrote to the church, although he himself hadn't founded the church and probably had never actually been to Colossae at this stage. Um, the church had been founded uh, through the preaching of one Epaphras, who's mentioned in verse 7 there, um, who had perhaps himself heard the gospel from Paul. Uh, on the whole, the church seems to be thriving. Paul describes them as the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Uh, he gives thanks for their faith and love in verse 4. Uh, he talks about the gospel bearing fruit and growing amongst them in verse 6. On the whole, we get the impression the Colossian church is a young and fairly thriving, vibrant church. Nevertheless, uh, we can deduce from the letter that not all is well in Colossae. Not all is well. Um, we have to admit we don't know exactly what the problem there might be. Paul isn't very specific in the letter, and maybe that's just because he didn't have first-hand experience. Uh, but we detect that something is going on. Um, it doesn't matter all that much if we can't get all the details right, because what the letter has to say is absolutely relevant to Christians at all times and in all situations. Still, if I were to try to put my finger on the problem in Colossae, I would say that it is probably nothing more than that they have been Christians for a little while. They've been Christians for a little while and the shine has come off their Christianity. It's not brand new anymore. The initial rush and excitement has maybe started to fade and uh, they're settling down perhaps into the long haul of the Christian life. And I wonder whether they didn't find themselves looking around and asking, is this it? Is this actually all there is to it? Is there no more than this? This is harder work than we thought it would be. There's less obvious progress than we expected to see. To be honest, a lot of life seems to just go on as it did before. Work life goes on, family life goes on. The hard slog of getting through the day goes on. Is this it? I think that's um, not uncommon in people who have been Christians for a few years, actually. Initially, there is that rush of excitement. We understand that something has changed in our lives and it's thrilling and it grips us and it carries us along. And then we realise that we're still in the world and we still have to live and we still have to go through all the day-to-day -day stuff that everybody else has to go through. And at that point, for many of us, the instinctive thing to do is to wonder what we are missing. Perhaps we've got Christianity a bit wrong or, or perhaps we're missing that little extra bit that would put the high back into our faith. Perhaps something's going on there. 
In Colossae, and we'll we'll probably see this in chapter 2 a bit later on, it seems the church is thinking about dabbling in some fairly obscure mystical philosophy, um, which the Greeks loved, and perhaps some uh, mysterious spiritual disciplines, such as uh, were current in the Jews of the time. So there's a real mix of stuff that they're looking into and wondering whether maybe this thing is the key that will put us back on track, give us the high that we had before. Well, Paul is going to address that situation. And uh, here in chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, in his opening greeting and his prayer, because the Apostle Paul doesn't muck about, he doesn't sort of write a load of small talk at the beginning and then get to his point, he's straight in there. And uh, I think I can see three main points in these verses, and there are numerous others which I could talk about but won't for the sake of time. I think I can see three main points that the Apostle wants to make to this young church And they're points which are relevant and vital to us as well. I'm going to uh, cover the first two points really quite briefly. In fact, I might talk very quickly and gabble through them so that we can dwell for a while on the third point, which I think is the most important and which lies underneath the other two um, and is also very exciting. So, uh, here we go. Oh, by the way, I only got back from holiday yesterday and that's why there's no PowerPoint. So you're just going to have to remember the points in your head Good. First point, um, from verses 3 to 7, Paul is really concerned to say to these Colossians, the gospel that you heard is the real message. It is the real message. Verses 3 to 7, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. The gospel you heard, says Paul, is the real thing. It's the real message. See, the Colossians could conceivably have been nervous about the message they had heard, Uh, Unlike so many of the churches around them, the the privileged folk down the road at Ephesus and other places around, my geography of ancient Asia Minor is somewhat lacking, but um, they they could have thought, we've only got a second-hand gospel. Unlike these other guys who have had apostles turn up and actually preach the message, the first-hand message which they heard from Jesus, we've just got this guy Epaphras, who is a decent sort of guy, but he's not an apostle, is he now? And maybe there's been something a bit, you know, a, a bit of a whispering game going on here. Jesus said something to Paul, Paul said something to Epaphras, Epaphras said something to us, and and maybe stuff has been lost at each stage, and we haven't got the whole thing. I think it would be very easy for them to get that idea. And Paul bends over backwards in these verses to say that that's not the case, and they don't need to worry about it. Notice phrases like, you have already heard, in verse 5 the gospel that has come to you, in verse 6. The gospel has been bearing fruit and growing in Colossae since the day you heard it, according to verse 6 again. This message is the word of truth, God's grace in all its truth. As for Epaphras himself, he is a faithful minister and even Paul's dear fellow servant. If the Colossians were wondering whether perhaps they'd missed something in the message, and that was why they weren't currently as excited as they had been, if 
they were wondering whether that was what was missing from their faith. Paul says, absolutely not. There's nothing wrong with the message. It doesn't matter whether you heard it directly from Paul or from Epaphras, second-hand. In fact, it doesn't matter whether you heard it in Oxford 2,000 years later. Because it is the truth. Now, thanks to letters like this one that the Apostle Paul wrote, we actually have the ability to check that what we are hearing week by week from this place really is the same message that the Apostles preached. And presumably that's one of the reasons why Paul wrote the letter in the first place. To say to these Colossians, you didn't hear the message from an Apostle, but don't worry about it. It's the same message, and it doesn't ultimately matter how many degrees you're removed from the source, or um, who it is who brought you the message, if it's the truth of the gospel, if it's God's word, then that is good enough. The message is fine. Now, I I don't know all of you here. Um, I know quite a lot of you, and I know that quite a lot of you uh, have been in this church for a long time. And I can tell you that you've heard the word of truth. You've heard it. There's no need, actually, to go running after new messages, trying to work out what it is that's missing, where is the secret, hidden bit of information that will unlock the higher Christian life. You've heard it. You've heard the Gospel. If the message was fine, if that was the real truth of God, there might perhaps be a problem with the way the Colossians have put it into practice. Maybe. And I think that is Paul's next point. Notice in verses 9 to 12, Paul tells them what he has been praying for them. And I think the nub of it is to say, just as the gospel you heard is the real message, the gospel life is real Christianity. Let me read uh, 9 to 12 again. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. I think the centre of Paul's prayer is there in verse 10. He's been praying that they might live a life worthy of the Lord. It's a big ask. I remember um, when I was at school, uh, my teachers used to try to impress on us how important it was that we behave well on the way from our homes to the school gate and back again. And they would say to us, for as long as you're wearing the school uniform, you represent the school. Um, presumably the suppressed premise in that argument was that we would care enough about the reputation of the school um, for that to make a difference. Sadly, we did not. Um, But I think that captures a part of what Paul is saying to the Colossian Christians here. My ultimate goal for you, he's saying, is that you, you will live a life that represents the Lord Jesus. You'll live a life that represents the Lord Jesus in the world. It sounds like, and frankly it is, a tall order. Um, It's a kind of phrase that trips off our tongues quite easily. Live a life worthy of the Lord. 
But if we stop and think about it and live a life worthy of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the universe, live a life worthy of this sinless, perfect human being, I wonder whether the Colossians came, might have wanted to come back to Paul and say, Paul, that's what we've been trying to do. We really have. But it's not really coming together. Um, we don't really feel like we're hitting the mark. I wonder whether the details of Paul's prayer are designed to help them. I think Paul effectively breaks down the Christian life into three big parts. Firstly, the Christian life, according to verse 9, involves a growing knowledge and understanding of God and his ways in the world. Uh, The Colossian Christians do need to know more about God, not from a new message, but from reflection on the message that they'd heard, from allowing it to sink in, to change the way they think, to change the way they approach the world, uh, their understanding of what they need to do day by day. They need to have this growing understanding of God. Secondly, according to verse 10, they need to bear fruit in every good work. In other words, they mustn't allow their growing knowledge to stay in their heads. It mustn't just be something that allows them to say, I know more about God. If it doesn't translate into action, into good works, it's no use. Real knowledge of God leads to good works. So, we've got these two things. Growing understanding, good works. And thirdly and finally, in verse 11... They must endure with joy. There will be hard times. There will be times when it's difficult to keep going as a Christian. Nevertheless, they're called to endure, and not just by kind of gritting their teeth, putting their heads down. I uh, had a friend who, whenever you said to him, how are you doing? He would say, oh, struggling on, struggling on. Um, He was in the prime of life and was doing very well, but he he just thought it was funny. But it's not to be that kind of head down, struggling on, struggling on, cap set against the wind, or it's all hard work. It's enduring with joy. Enduring with joy. Uh, And the joy comes from the fact that they know that at the end of it, they have this inheritance, this presence with God in the kingdom of light, which they've been qualified for by Jesus. So uh, that's the life worthy of the Lord, according to Paul. Growing understanding, good works, Great endurance. should really be joyful endurance. doesn't start with G, so I left it as great endurance. Growing understanding, good works, great endurance. I want you to notice, though, two things. Uh, firstly, there is no dramatic secret here to living the Christian life. I guess uh, many of us know that feeling of being in a bit of a slump, um, feeling like this isn't really working out, and, and, and looking around to work out, well, what is the secret of a happy and successful Christian life. What is it? What's the key? Um, And there is no secret. It's just growing in knowledge, seeking to do good, enduring with joy. There isn't a secret message or a key lifestyle choice that is going to make it all flow and bring it all together. There's no kind of extra coded bit that will transport us to a new, higher level of Christian experience. It's just growing understanding, good works, great endurance. It's a life worthy of the Lord. Notice that. That's going to be important for the whole of the rest of Colossians. Secondly, I want you to notice that Paul is praying for this stuff. 
Because, again, our approach very often to when we feel bad in the Christian life is to say, what do I need to do to fix it? Um, and we turn to self-help. How can I pull myself up my, my bootstraps? And the answer is, you cannot. Um, it's all very well for me to stand here and say there's no great secret to it. doesn't mean it's not hard. Actually, I think the Bible goes further than to say this is hard. It goes so far as to say, this is impossible and you cannot do it. And so Paul turns to God, with whom nothing is impossible, and says, I pray that these Colossians would live this sort of life, a life that's worthy of the Lord Jesus. I do wonder um, whether we ever pray for this sort of thing. Um, The vast majority of my prayers, I think, for myself and for other people, are kind of firefighting prayers. Lord, something's gone wrong, help. Lord, this person's struggling, help. Much less of that, I pray that I and the people at Magdalen Road Church and my friends and family would live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him in every way. I think that's a, a defect in my prayer life and I put it out there for you to consider whether it might not be a defect in yours as well. Third point I want to make really underlies everything I've said so far. I, I think Paul has told them that the, the gospel they heard is the real message. He's told them that the gospel life is real Christian living. And uh, this is the, the third and the biggest point. Um, if you've been snoozing... Um, now would be a great time to wake up. I should have said at the beginning that for those of you who are accustomed to take a snooze in the middle of the sermon, it would be better if you did it at the beginning and, and then I could wake you up halfway through. But uh, here we go. This is the big point. The Gospel, says Paul, is a message of real deliverance in Christ. Let me read verses 13 and 14. He has rescued us, God that is, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now these verses describe something that has actually happened to the Colossian Christians, and indeed to all Christians. And the fact that this has actually happened is absolutely crucial. It would not matter at all whether the Colossians had heard the real apostolic message or just some other fake message, if there was no reality that lay behind the apostolic message. The message of the apostles mattered because it was a message that was true. Um, If the real message was just ultimately an empty message, a message with no powerful content, then who cares what you've heard? Uh, It wouldn't be possible to live a gospel life if in fact the gospel was just words and ideas and didn't refer to something that had actually powerfully taken place in the world and in the lives of Christians. Unless there's something, something real at the heart of it all, then the whole thing falls apart or simply becomes insignificant. And it's that something real that Paul is describing in verses 13 and 14, um, which I want to linger over for the remainder of our time this morning. So what have we got going on here? Essentially what Paul describes in verse 13 is a transfer, a movement from one situation into another. And because it's a movement from a a dire, helpless situation into a blessed and happy situation, he calls it a rescue. You have been rescued from this place and brought to this place. And it will be helpful for us 
to just dwell on where is it that we've been rescued from if we are Christians? What is it that we've been brought into if we are Christians? Well, according to Paul, we've been rescued from the dominion of darkness. Darkness is a hugely um, suggestive image, I think, for Paul to use here. Um, It's got a lot of biblical echoes, but I mean, even just thinking common experience, I'm not sure there's anything quite so frightening as being in actual pitch darkness. Hardly ever happens to us, especially if we live in the city, because there's always a street lamp casting its slightly unpleasant orange glow through the window. But real darkness leaves you actually completely helpless. Can't see. If you've ever ever tried to move around a room, even a room that you're quite familiar with, when it's completely pitch black, you'll know that you're basically rendered helpless. You're, You're stumbling over things all over the place. If you're me, you're banging your shins on the bed as you go around one corner of the bed, and then banging them again as you go around the other corner, falling into bed a partial cripple. It's very upsetting. Darkness means helplessness. It means helplessness. But more than that, in the Bible, darkness means evil. Darkness is where sin happens. Darkness is where people rise up in rebellion against God. Darkness is all of the stuff in the world to which God says, no, that is not my will, that is wrong. That is darkness. And therefore, darkness represents in the Bible God's wrath, God's anger, as it falls on all of that stuff. If you want to see the image of darkness operating in the Bible, go back to the Exodus story. Darkness across the whole land of Egypt, representing God's wrath. Or, even more suggestively, when the Israelites get to the sea, the pillar stands between them and the Egyptian army which is pursuing them. And we're told, on one side, on the Israelite side, there is light. And on the Egyptian side, darkness. Darkness, the realm of God's wrath. You want to see it even more clearly. Go into the Synoptic Gospels, open up the Gospels, and read the description of Jesus' crucifixion. Darkness over the whole land in the middle of the day. I think perhaps most uh, alarmingly, um, Jude 13 um, describes the fact that those who teach falsehood in the church, those who teach lies in the church, are condemned for utter darkness. The gloom of utter darkness, writes Jude. The ultimate falling into the hands of an angry God. It's suggestive as well that Paul describes this as the dominion of darkness. Now the word um, used there for dominion is a fairly neutral word, power or authority. But when you contrast it with the kingdom of the beloved son... We're surely meant to get the impression that this is a a usurped authority, a a, a tyrannical authority. Evil, sin, darkness has usurped the authority of God. And this world is now dark territory. 
And we mustn't lose the fact that Paul is saying, that is the situation that you were in. You lived under the tyrannical rule of darkness. And that expressed itself in your own sin. It expresses itself in the messed up nature of the world that we see around us. That is where you were. But a rescue has been effected. A rescue has been effected. And we have been transferred, says Paul, brought into the kingdom of the Son God loves. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm searching for words to express how exciting I think this thought is. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who knows darkness. When we went to the Gospels and we saw the darkness there as the expression of God's wrath, that was when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross. Jesus knows the darkness. He's been through the darkness. He knows what it is to bear the weight of sin. And he has been victorious over it. He knows what it is to pass into um, what the Old Testament keeps on calling the darkness of Sheol, the place of death, the place where the dead go. He knows what it means to die and he's passed through that darkness as well and risen victorious from it. He has borne the wrath of God for us. He has borne our sin for us. And he is our king now if we are Christians. We have been moved from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the one who has decisively and completely defeated darkness through his death and resurrection. And that has happened as a real occurrence, which is good. There are uh, two big benefits of being part of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus that are described in verse 14. Redemption and forgiveness of sins. And, and they are words that we only use in church. And they are words that perhaps lose their meaning for us in the everyday world. But let's just try to, try to get that meaning back and try to restock our heads with, with the biblical imagery and, and what's going on here. Redemption, buying back from slavery. Paul may well have in mind the Exodus image where God says that he has redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. It's bringing someone back from a state of slavery into which they have fallen. And integral to the image is the paying of a price. A price has been paid to redeem people from the kingdom of darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We've been redeemed. It's worth um, noting that for Paul, for the Apostle Paul, Redemption is the image that he usually uses to describe the final completion of our salvation. Uh, he talks in, in Romans 8.23 about Christians waiting eagerly for the redemption of their bodies, meaning the final resurrection from the dead. Uh, he talks in, in Ephesians 4.30 about the coming day of redemption to which he's looking forward. See, redemption for Paul is the completed process all of it done. We're finally redeemed as Christians when we stand before Jesus in resurrection bodies, seeing him face to face. So it's important that we understand then 
that being brought into the kingdom of the Son God loves brings with it complete salvation from beginning to end. Brings with it everything that is needed for us to get to that day of final redemption in our resurrection bodies to see the Lord Jesus and to be with him forever. That is what it means to be transferred into this kingdom. That is what follows from it. Becoming a Christian already includes the future resurrection from the dead and eternal life seeing Jesus face to face. And uh, if you're not excited about that, well, you should be. (laughs) There should be a better answer to that, shouldn't there? If you're not excited about that, read the Gospels and find out about Jesus. He's an exciting prospect to see him face to face. As well as redemption, there's forgiveness of sins here. Forgiveness of sins um, because they have been taken away by our King, born by our King, up to the cross and paid for by our King. If you've um, been a Christian for a little while, you may have lost sight of how astonishing this actually is. Um, It happens very easily. Um, we, we kind of get into a state of mind where we think forgiveness of sins, yeah, that's kind of what God does, isn't it? And that's, that's just what he does. Uh, he's like that. We need to bear in mind the God who has transferred us from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his son whom he loves, that God is the exact same God who created us in the first place, gave us everything good in the world and against whom we have sinned. This is the the God for whom every sin that we commit, no matter how minor or tiny it appears to us, is like spitting in his face because it is a rejection of his great love and a denial, a, a refusal to admit that he is the creator who knows what is best for us. And when we're talking about the dominion of darkness, we need to bear in mind that a good chunk of that dominion of darkness is in me comes from me. I mean, it's quite right to point out that without Jesus, we're under the power of darkness. We're helpless in the face of darkness. But it's only fair to say that we've all been collaborators with that alien power. We've all gone along with the dominion of darkness. We've all sinned. And if we're going to move from one kingdom to the other, it can only be by the forgiveness of our wicked and, frankly, stupid collaboration with the enemy of God and the enemy of our own souls. And to think that that forgiveness was won for us by King Jesus, not just through a royal decree, but through his death on a cross. We um, sing a children's song, don't we, that asks, what kind of king goes to a cross? It's not the sort of thing that kings do on the whole. That Jesus, King of Kings, suffers and dies so that we can be forgiven, rescued from the dominion of darkness and rescued from ourselves. Notice that both of these benefits are ours in him, in in Jesus Paul says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
it's a central theme of the New Testament that we often ignore because it's a bit weird, um, that Christians are joined to Jesus, united to him, in him. Don't talk about this nearly as much as we should, but by faith, Paul says, we are joined to the Lord Jesus and it is that union, that union, which allows us to enjoy the benefits of everything that he has done and everything that he is. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And uh, I can't help noticing that you're all still sat in your seats and there haven't been any cheers. And that's possibly just because I haven't said it right. But over this afternoon, perhaps you'd like to go away and just turn this sentence over and over in your heads a bit until it does get a cheer out of you. If you're too British for a cheer, at least a broad smile. <laughs> Look, if this is the message that the Colossians have heard, they don't need another one. If this is the gospel that stands behind that call to live a life worthy of the Lord, then all of the power is here because something has happened to us. We have moved. We are not any longer under the dominion of darkness, but we are in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God. And that is good news, whether you will cheer for it or not. But I can imagine that some of the Colossians, and maybe for some of us, and that answer might not be enough because we want to come back and say, yes, we do believe that message. We're thrilled by the idea of being transferred into Jesus' kingdom. We're very excited about redemption and forgiveness of sins. We love all of that. But still, at the end of this service, I've got to leave this place and go into my, my daily life uh, and everything that the week is going to bring at me and I'm going to look around the world and I'm going to say, I don't see it. I just don't see it. I don't see it in the world around me. I don't even see it in myself. I'm still sinning. I'm still failing. There's unbelief there. The lives worthy of the Lord that you're, you're calling us to live just don't seem to be materialising in reality. It, it's all good talk. You talk a good game, but I'm, I'm not seeing it there. Are you sure? Are you sure there isn't something more? Are you sure there isn't something that I've missed out on that will turn all of these beautiful ideas and wonderful concepts into something that actually has legs on Monday morning, that actually works and does something in my life. And uh, in response, I want to uh, try to raise and lower your expectations of what the Christian life is going to be like at exactly the same time. Partly because I enjoy setting myself impossible tasks, partly because I think that the logic of the passage demands it. Um, and I'm going to start with the lowering because, let's face it, it would be nice to end on a high point. Everybody sings better that way. So, let me start with the lowering. I think that many of us get the idea that the Christian life is, or ought to be, a series of exciting incidents, uh, a constant adventure, uh, a thrill ride with God. And uh, sometimes it is like that. But I think the more normal pattern and the most helpful way to think about what a Christian life looks like 
is the way Paul describes it. Growing understanding, good works, great endurance with joy. There's a steadiness there, uh, putting one foot after the other, that I think we sometimes miss out on. Sticking at it, I guess, is the best summary. Sticking at it with joy, to be sure, but basically keeping going. And the only way we will stick at it is if we remember that our redemption and forgiveness are in Jesus. Uh, Let me put it this way. I'm not sure I'm going to communicate this very well. Let me put it this way. If we look around here, if we look at our own lives, and if we look at the people around us and the world that we see around us, frankly, we're going to see a lot of mixed evidence, a lot of shades of grey, a lot of ambivalence. We'll see a little progress in my life here. Maybe I'm praying more than I used to. A little bit of backsliding over here. Maybe I'm sinning more than I used to. We'll we'll see a little bit of faith, real trust in God. And then the next minute, like a cartload of unbelief has just been dumped on us and we hardly know whether there is a God in the universe at all. We'll see a few good works here and there. And then an appalling amount of selfishness that would frankly just rather stay in bed for an extra hour than get up and help somebody out. I'm just speaking of myself. Goodness knows what I would see if I could pry into your hearts. Our redemption and forgiveness just aren't visible to us. We look around and we say, where are they? Where is this massive change that you're saying has happened to me? Where is it? And um, the answer is, in Jesus. Um, I don't know who's preaching on Colossians 3 and therefore I'm going to feel absolutely no compulsion about stealing their thunder. Um, To preview... Oh, it's Tim. Sorry, Tim. Things can bear to be said twice. It'll be fine. To preview Tim's excellent sermon, um, Colossians 3, 1-2 is the central instruction that Paul has for this church. the, The hinge on which the letter turns. And in it, he tells them, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. All the most glorious things about being a Christian are not here, but there. All the most amazing things are there. Jesus in his resurrection body, the guarantee of our future redemption. Jesus, the king, the conqueror of sin. Jesus, the son whom God loves, reigning over the universe. It's all there. I want to lower your expectations of the Christian life because for now, he is there and we are here. I'm going to raise them in a minute, don't worry. Everything is not finished. So life will be a hard slog. It will be one step after the other. Yes, joy because we're looking forward to what we will have. But still, in the here and now, just an an attempt to have a steady growth in understanding, a steady growth in good works, enduring, sticking with it. And so I think the message of Colossians as a whole, and, and even of this opening greeting and prayer, is this. Fix your eyes on what is real there, where Jesus is, and you can and will make it through the here and now. And there will be joy in enduring. Joy in putting one foot after the other through the hard slog of life. Just remember, 
There's so much, if you're a Christian, that you have in Christ that is not yet in your present experience. There's so much which you have secure, certain, definitely there in Christ, which maybe you don't see yet, and you're going to have to trust, you're going to have to believe, and you're going to have to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who really has conquered sin and death, and really has brought you into his kingdom. Well, if I've um, sufficiently lowered your expectations of the Christian life and you now think that it's just going to be a hard slog plodding on towards heaven, um, let me try to raise your expectations of the Christian life because I know that there are some people in this room uh, perhaps who expect a constant thrill from following Jesus but there are other people who expect almost nothing from following Jesus. And uh, perhaps it's partly just because we're pessimists by nature. You'll notice I include myself in this group. Or, or perhaps it's that we know our Christian doctrine and we remember that the resurrection of our bodies hasn't happened yet and there's still a great deal to look forward to. And uh, so we, we, we look forward to the future with Jesus, but we expect very little from him in the here and now. And so we do just plod through life. Well, if to lower some people's expectations, I've had to say to you that you have redemption and forgiveness only in Christ, let me raise some other people's expectations by saying that in Christ you do have redemption and forgiveness. This is real. This has happened. The transfer into the kingdom of the gloriously beloved Son of God has occurred if you are following and trusting Jesus. You were under the dominion of darkness. Now you are rescued, transferred to the kingdom of Jesus. And if you don't yet see the full effects of that rescue, don't let that prevent you from seeking urgently and earnestly to see something of that kingdom power worked out in your life. Don't excuse your sin because you don't yet have everything. You've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. You do not have to sin. The power is there. Fix your eyes on Jesus for forgiveness and for strength to resist. Don't neglect to do good works just because you can't fix everything in the world. Remember that in Jesus, everything is in principle fixed already and work it out. The gospel is a message of real deliverance and because it's a message of real deliverance, the secret to the Christian life is just to cling to it. Just to cling to the message and to continually lift our eyes and hearts to the Lord Jesus in whom everything is done and accomplished and finished. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, trust in the Lord Jesus. I think I could preach a hundred sermons maybe a thousand that ended that way because that is actually all there is to it trust in the Lord Jesus follow him trust him for the big stuff yes, for the redemption of your body for the forgiveness of all your sins trust him for the day to day stuff the little hobbling along on the way of discipleship trust in the Lord Jesus let me read to you again verses 3 to 5 we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints 
a faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. Did you notice that the slightly odd way he phrases that? Paul is always going on about faith, love and hope. They're his favourite three words apart from Jesus and Christ. Faith, hope and love. But here he says, you have a hope, a hope that is certain in heaven and therefore you have faith and love. Your faith and love come out of your hope. Do you see what he's saying? Because this is true, because this is real, because Jesus Christ is there at the right hand of the Father having achieved all of this and brought you into his kingdom and therefore you have this hope of being with him secure and certain hope because it's based on what he has done therefore you have faith therefore you have love therefore you're able to grow in understanding therefore you're able to grow in good works everything depends on Jesus everything depends on Jesus